Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Pack Filler Interviews. I'm Pat Bolger. So, if you're listening, chances are you own at least one bike, right? Also, chances are that that bike or those bikes cost a bit of change, right? Now, if you're fully into it, you've upgraded parts or even bikes, right? You see where I'm going here. Well, there's where things get spendy. And let me ask you this. How are your wrench skills? you feel comfortable working on your own bike? Are you fairly competent, or like me, you're competent but just in technology that ended at about the same time that the grunge movement did? Or or you're fairly new to all this? Or you're pretty good at all this and you've wondered how far you can go with the skill set? Well, that's where our guest today comes in. Not many of us can take the time to drop everything and head to a proper mechanics course or get a basic job in a bike shop to learn the skills, all while earning minimum wage or probably less. Well, that's where Sean Lally comes in. He is the founder and president of Cycle Systems Online, a full mechanics school that features not only every element of bike mechanical curriculum, but also some of the top names and representatives from all of the top bike companies as featured educators, all at your own time, your own pace, and ongoing. The curriculum is always being updated. Not to mention Sean has been doing all this for a while. He has some great stories. He knows some stuff, and he's pretty entertaining along the way. So here we go. Sean Lally on the pack filler interviews all right as it said in the introduction introduction we have the director of cycle systems online sean lally how are you ma'am yeah i'm good i've never been interdicted before i hope that isn't anything rude pat <laughs> i don't even know never mind <laughs> um so it's the intro is i'm going to say a whole lot of flattering things earlier on that i just don't want to embarrass you or something like that make it all seem like that 
or incriminating information. Hey, um, first of all, to begin, I, I always like to figure out and get a little background, a little exposition, a little perspective here in terms of um, your history within the sport. Um, was were you the classic started as a, as a bike racer and then worked your way into the shop at the workbench, or was it some other type of a process? What got you all in, involved? Yeah, so I guess I'm one of those people you come across them that were kind of born into cycling, you know, so I feel incredibly fortunate for that. So my grandparents were cyclists. I've got all of these wonderful photos of them in the 1930s, you know, cycling and cycle touring around Merseyside and North Wales. And in fact, my grandfather, even when he was very old and alzheimer's and he couldn't remember who you were or what was going on but you'd say granddad what's a good um what's a good gear for winter training you'd be like 68 inches you know classic good gear that good training gear <laughs> so gives you a kind of idea yeah and uh, my dad was a keen cyclist as well and give you some context of my life growing up my parents would go to the same house party every New Year's Eve at their friends and have a big party. And downstairs would be the drinks and the dancing. Then the first floor would be all the teenagers getting wasted. And I did my bit of that <laughs> in style when I hit my teenage years. But the top floor, you know, the attic was the cycle racing guys. And what they used to do was have the Tour de France on VHS. Now, back in the 80s, in the early 80s, the Tour de France was shown for the first time on UK television, the famous Channel 4 coverage with Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin later oh, on, yeah. the famous music by Pete Shelley. And these guys used to record the whole tour and then watch it new year's eve the entire tour so as a young child i'd go and watch this and sit there and learn about track racing and bike racing and it was just part of growing up that is a, actually a really cool way to celebrate new year's eve now that i'm, I'm gonna have I to think. do something like that i i probably have some vhs tapes tapes around here ours was phil liggett um before paul sherman we had a, a guy by the name of john tesh and, I know John Tesh, that amazing CBS footage of yeah, Harry Roubaix yeah. and such. I love that. <laughs> to a total synthesized soundtrack. And, uh, yeah, yeah, was, yeah, and the mad graphics. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So um, you, now your history in terms of, of, of the mechanical aspect of it. Well, first of all, did, were you a competitive cyclist or a, or a, a tourist or leisure? Or what was it? What was your time on the saddle? Yeah, so I was the kid on the block that had the racing bike, right? Okay. You know, so in the 80s, I guess in America, you had Schwinn and in England, we had Raleigh. So everyone had a Raleigh chopper or a Raleigh grifter or a bit later, the Raleigh burners, the BMXs when they came in. This was way before mountain bikes, well, for the UK anyway. Yeah. Um, and a few of us would have racing bikes, you know, with hardcore racing dads. So yeah, I always wanted to be a bike racer. And as I got into my teenage years, I'm like, right, I'm gonna be a bike racer. And in fact, one of my best friends, Lee Markham, his older brother, Phil, a few years older than us, was like my hero, because he rode quite a high standard locally, ended up in Manchester Wheelers. Um, tragically died really young. He joined the Royal Air Force and died, you know, about oh, 17 yeah. years old. Oh. And it was just, yeah completely shocking and i always wondered i wonder what phil markham could have done as a, a cyclist you know but we'll never know yeah. 
But basically, I um, joined a local club, Marple Wheelers. Marple's a nice leafy suburb of Manchester in the north of England and started going out on their training rides. I guess when I was about 14, 15, you know, on my steel frame entry-level Bianchi with 10 gears and, you know, all the rest of it. And it was that classic northern English club culture. We'd all meet at this pub called The Rising Sun on a Sunday morning, (laughs) and loads of different clubs would meet there, Stockport, Clarion, and other clubs. And we'd all charge off to smash around the leafy lanes of Cheshire at an average 20 miles an hour. So imagine when you start doing that as a teenager with all of these established bike races, you're just getting your head kicked in. Yeah. And the first time you you make it around one of these rides, it's a real sense of achievement. And it was like an apprenticeship. As you were riding, the old fellow would come up next to you and lean over and say, hey, you don't want to be in the big ring all day. You can spin it more. It's good for your knees. And one of your legs is go doing this and doing that and giving you all of this advice as you went. So it was a wonderful sense of camaraderie. We used to go to the pub every Tuesday night and talk about cycling. And one of my neighbours who was in the club would take me up there in his car. And it was probably like my first opportunity to get a bit pissed, which in England means a bit drunk, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get angry, you know. Just getting a bit bit tipsy. I remember we get a bit merry, you know. And I probably did more drinking than cycling with these guys. But (laughs) it was really fantastic. It was that sense of adventure. It was hard. You know, there wasn't anything gentle or um, soft about it. So you'd be up in the Peak District in the, you know, the rough kind of countryside where there's just no trees, you know, and the wind's blowing in and it's raining. You get a double puncture and they just fuck off and leave you, <laughs> you know? But, and it was a bit like my friends used to go to the boxing club. It's called the Rat Pit in Bradbury. It was like the local boxing club. And what they do at the boxing club is someone would beat the crap out of you on the first night. And if you came back next week, you were worth training up. And it was kind of the same vibe with the cycle club is if you were tough enough, you'd keep going. So I wanted to road race. Right? So what was on TV. I wanted to do road racing and it was like a secret society in England, you know, in Britain. I don't know if you've sort of read the history of what cycling was like in the UK, but essentially in the early days of cycling, like early 20th century, the British cyclists had this kind of class, you know, deference, you know, to yeah. the, the ruling classes, as it were. And they were terrified of cycling just being banned. So they would do as little as possible to upset the landed gentry. And there was one incident where a posh woman on her horse was hit by a cyclist. She complained. And the British cycling, whatever they were called at the time, voluntary banned all road racing. Oh, shit. And time trials would take place, but in secret. You know, people would dress in all black like cycling ninjas, (laughs) woolen cycling ninjas. (laughs) All of the races that happen at six o'clock on a Sunday morning, they had code names. See you at BBL216. So it, it had this culture of secrecy, which even though that all got blew out the water by the British League of Racing Cyclists at a later time, which is for another podcast, it retained that secrecy. And you couldn't even find out how to enter a road race. But they all they were all time trialists. So they said, okay, come and watch a time trial. I mean, imagine how fun was that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you can start doing them, you know? 
So it was a very slow introduction to it all. And by this time, I'm kind of 15, 16. And you start to get to know these cyclists a bit. And the honest truth, Pat, is I started to realize a lot of them were doping. (laughs) (laughs) And this was not professional or even high national standard cyclists. This was people racing local 10, 25, 50 mile time trials. Um, complaining about the state of the roads and why they never got a fast time. And they were kind of doing, not all of them, but there's a good few of them doing steroids at the gym to build up strength in the off-season, then speed and amphetamines and stuff they'd take in the nightclubs on the weekends, you know, they'd bung in a bit of homemade pot belge for the races. And I was a bit uninspired. I was like, oh, you know, 16 years old, I was like, oh, so in order to do this, because you realize how hard it is by this point. So in order to do this, I've got to train and train and train. Then I've got these guys doping yeah. anyway as my role models. I'd rather go to the pub with my mates, you know, and just kick back and have fun. And I'll be perfectly honest, I grew my hair, went to the pub and never looked back. I never quite sort of got into the racing scene. They yeah. turned me off. But I would. My first thought when you were explaining that was to think to myself, then why ever would you come back to an industry related to that that scene <laughs> and 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 actually wrench bikes for these guys who you were clearly disenchanted with because of their nefarious off time activities? Yeah, well, bike racing is such a small part of cycling. Yeah. It always has been and always will be. You know, so. I kind of grew up, um, ended up as a bit of environmental activist, you know, and that whole world, it was all like kill the car, you know, the 1990s road protests and everything. So essentially cycling was just a a huge part of that culture. So I ended up with a mountain bike, which was given to my parents by one of their neighbors who it was given to them. And my dad had nice bikes. He said, Sean, have this mountain bike. So that was when I was like 18 and 19. It was the first bike I'd had for a year or two. And it was a way of getting around and being green and, of course, exploring the countryside. So I'd actually come to Switzerland when I was 16 and done some mountain biking in the Bernese Oberland, which is, funnily enough, it's where I live now. And that was my introduction to mountain biking, which was how good can that get? So I just got back into riding as a thing to do, as a way to get around, as a way to explore the countryside. And then... When you start riding a bike again, you start getting interested in all aspects of it. Yeah. And so mechanics, was that the just the next logical step? Or did you did you start off in a shop? I, I remember my first job in a bike shop was just in a back assembling absolutely terrible children's bikes and things <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, box upon box upon box, just assembling those. Was your start there or what, what took you to this level you are now at today? Yeah, so I guess like a lot of people my generation, like I'm 49 this year, I was lucky enough to be taught a lot of stuff by my dad. And he, of course, had learned from his dad, you know, and it was just that era where we had to fix things ourselves. Things weren't done for us. So I grew up with a basic, you know, knowledge of looking after the bike and you absorb this stuff in the club and everything. So I was I was fairly okay at looking after the bike, but there were certain things that were mysteries as well, you know, certain tools I'd never had. So got to a certain 
um, age. I'm trying to think of when it would be. I, th I would have, you know, I was well into my 20s because I did all sorts of environmental work. I worked in horticulture, horticultural research, permaculture. That's a whole other story, you know, the anarchist eco-villages and, and everything. <laughs> Li living the life there with loads of great stories and experience. Met some fantastic people. But ended up living on a narrowboat yeah. with um, my wife, Julia, you know, uh, my new wife as she was then. And I went and did a course to get a formal qualification, government-recognized qualification in bike mechanics. And we'd been moored up in London because Julia was a playwright and director and had her first professional gig putting on a play in London, which was oh, wow. just awesome. It was called The Hunchback of Bethnal Green, and it was like taking the old story of the hunchback and focusing it on modern London and like the underclass of modern London. And we did that and it was great, but it was like, okay, we have, we live on a boat, you know. So when that finished, we sailed up to Oxford. I went and did my bike mechanic course while the boat was in Reading, I think, like halfway up. So we arrived in Oxford, um, which is, a, anyone that doesn't know it, is a city of cycling. <laughs> you know, there are just bikes everywhere. And this was fairly unusual back then for the UK. So I, you know, I arrived in Oxford with my tools, with the boat, with my qualification and skills. And I set up doing mobile bike mechanics and worked part-time in a bike shop. So, you know, did both. Yeah. Uh, first of all, when I read your, your websites talking about the narrowboats, I have very little experience with them. I've done, I've done a vacation and it's kind of funny you're talking about the Oxford area and, and that was where we did our trip. And I always thought, it, maybe I'm overly romanticizing it, but it just seems like such a, a calm and pristine type of a life uh, to live on one of those. I always thought, I could do this, but you probably could peel back the curtain and tell me that it's all absolutely tiny and cramped and you know, you're always trying to find out where to to moor or something like that well obviously it's not um you know it's not sylvan families you know but it was <laughs> a fantastic lifestyle yeah. you know i mean i'd um i'd done the whole new age traveler thing in the uk so i'd lived in vans i'd lived in caravans i'd lived in like gypsy rod tents you know benders and it's all pretty hard you know to yeah. me and you get a lot of stick from the police and the authorities and you're often not that welcome Whereas living on a boat, it's a socially acceptable way of being nomadic, yeah. basically. And it's really fascinating because it isn't just one subculture of hippies. It's all of these different people who come together for different reasons to, to live on the water, you know? So overall, we lived on the boat for 12 years. So it was overwhelmingly positive experience. There's things you could yeah so quite tough but overall the amount of freedom that we had was just staggering and the the access to nature the living in nature was second to none and you'd normally be moored opposite some millionaire you know <laughs> there's some incredible house on the thames yeah but the thing is is they couldn't move their house and the next week you'd be opposite some other millionaire then somewhere else so you are constantly exposed to difference, whether it's the changing of the seasons or the scenery or the people around you. Oh, man. So from there, obviously, you're working directly on the boat, correct? Um, well, we had, I did mobile. Okay. So essentially, I had a bike and a trailer 
and literally, oh, wow. you know, tools in the back, tires on the roof, you know. Yeah. And I was also the first bike shop I ever worked at was called Walton Street Cycles, which was funny enough in Walton Street in Oxford, run by the legendary John, who's tragically no longer with us. He died quite young, but it was just one of those proper old school bike shops. Yeah. Everyone listening to this, I'm sure knows what I mean. They've got every part in stock. Yeah. The staff are wonderful. Most of them, you know, some of the stack, staff are young, angry punks, you know, and <laughs> um, it was just that place that was rooted in its community. So, you know, England and its class culture and its feudal society, it's never changed that much. It's not that different to Game of Thrones, really. And essentially, <laughs> the Oxford colleges, part of Oxford University, own most of Oxford. And they own pretty much the whole of Walton Street. Yeah. The Worcester College, I think, owns it. And the bastards were constantly trying to triple the rent, double the rent, you know, all the time, which is why Walton Street is now mostly just restaurants. <laughs> you know, all the, all the things have shut down. Yeah. Um, all the lovely little car garages, and, you know, things. But essentially, John's customers were politicians, high-powered lords, you know, legal experts and such. Oxford is full of all the brilliant minds and influencers for want of a better word of the uk not all of them but many so essentially you know lord barclay would send a letter in support <laughs> of one street cycles and he'd get pro bono legal support and screw <laughs> oxford university right back to their tidy little quad every single time <laughs> i love it now where at what point did uh, Cycle Systems become an entity? Was it originally designed as something to train people in house, some sort of a certification process? Yeah, so essentially, um, you know, I was a water gypsy and yeah. um, played a lot of music. So traditional Irish music is my other big thing. I can never decide if I'm a cyclist that plays the pipes or a piper that rides a bike. I'm not, it's kind of 50 <laughs> 50, you know. But essentially, Julia and I were quite happy floating around, being creative and doing our jobs to make the money. And I was just quite lucky because the job was bikes and I love bikes. And I ended up working at this fantastic place called Oxford Cycle Workshop, which was minimum wage, but really rootsy, workers cooperative. Yeah. And one of the things we did there was called the Bike Doctor that's fairly ubiquitous now, but was new at the time. Well, we'd go to major employers, mostly the university, and fix people's bikes, and the employer would pay for the labor time, you know? Oh, wow. And when Julia got pregnant, you know, we were in our 30s, and it was like, ah, oh, kind of got to get serious with this adult thing, you know? I mean, maybe <laughs> that was a mistake in retrospect. <laughs> Don't do the adult thing, kids. Yeah. If you're in your 30s and you got a kid, guys, just carry on as normal. You'll be all right. <laughs> they won't mentally scar them. They don't know any difference. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. So we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll move back to London because we've got the we can we've got the boat. We just untie the ropes and off we go down the River Thames to London, where the streets are paved with gold. You know, modern day <laughs> Dick Whittington, and we'll set up the bike doctor there, right? And because no one was doing it. Yeah. And there's the whole city with all of these people. So we kind of sailed on down the river or chugged on down the river. And what we did was create this bike doctor market ourselves. So I went to the local government, you know, the city, um, Greater London Authority and Transport for London, all of these people 
who do transport planning across the whole of London, who help big employers plan their employees' transport. And essentially, I said, you've got to try the bike doctor because they were getting these big companies to have showers at work and safe cycle parking. They had all of this cycle safety training. And I was like, well, look, guys, if someone gets a flat tire, they're not going to ride their bike. You need a mechanic. You need them in the workplace. And to cut a long story short, it exploded. And within a year, we had a whole team of mechanics were servicing multi sites all across London. I'm drinking wine in the mayor's office, you know, <laughs> covered in grease and oil um, <laughs> after doing a bike doctor talking cycling strategy with, you know, the then socialist mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, who really kick-started the whole cycling revolution in Britain, thanks to Jenny Jones, who was his deputy mayor and who was Green Party, and still as Baroness Jenny Jones as she is now, is doing tremendous work to promote the environment and democracy in Britain. So it really was like being Dick Whittington, you know, and Julia and I kind of became inadvertent capitalists with all of the weirdness of that, like we're employing people and um, working within the system, man, you know, so it was mental and it was hard work and it was kind of fun, you know, it's kind of fun being in London and just being part of that madness. Yeah. And someone approached us, to do the mechanics for this city bike share scheme you know as a bid for that and we realized we'd need about 100 mechanics and like where do you get them so cycle systems academy the idea of it came from a need for mechanics from mobile mechanic business we went to the london cycle show in earl's court in 2008 and we actually had a stand there because we were servicing the police bikes and ambulance bikes at the time and they had a stand and they didn't have the manpower to, to man it, as yeah. it were. So they said, you take our shit up there. So we are, it was great fun riding through London with the blue lights on and the sirens. <laughs> Get out of the way. <laughs> um, and they said, look, you can have half the stand for cycle systems. So we did that. And this gentleman approached me and said, oh, I've just retired from working in the city. I'd like to invest in a green growth business. Wow. And um, six months of spreadsheets later, he wrote a check, basically. And at the same time, I was going round every single stand at the cycle show saying, hey, will you sponsor Cycle Systems Academy? And to my amazement and quite frankly, everlasting gratitude, everyone just said, yeah, what do you want? Really? And this was hope. This was Brompton, this was Pashley, this was Specialized, this was Trek. Most importantly, Pedro's Tools, you know, which were part of Trek at the time. Uh, Campagnolo, SRAM, you name it. People were just like, yeah. It was just the right time and the right place, you know. And it was incredible. You know, so we we got a lease on a property in London, which quite frankly, I had no idea how actually scary that is we just did it anyway signed into a five-year lease (laughs) and boxes and boxes of bikes arrived from specialized to use for training boxes of carbon fiber frames from trek wow honestly all the pedro's tools you could imagine completely sent free of charge from pedro's um you know as as use in training as sponsorship incredible support from weldtight as well uk company so it was kind of overwhelming. There was this huge wave of positivity and excitement about cycling in London at the time. And we just surfed it. Wow. 
how now was was the online element what brought that about was it was it due primarily to the covid restrictions or was this prior to that in which you guys thought to yourselves an in-house training program is obviously one thing i mean i don't correct me if i'm wrong and i hope you can explain the differences between the two and it versus an in-house versus a virtual program and and with something as hands-on as bike mechanics how does that transfer over to an online platform so what was the thought process Mm -hmm. in in bringing this about and and how did how does it how does it compare yeah so great question pat and honestly we set up the academy in 2009 and we started doing government approved qualifications so essentially the qualifications are part of the government's engineering framework yeah so they're internationally recognized they're quite strictly quality controlled there's lots of checks happening all the time i can't pass someone because i like their t-shirt i can't fail someone because they're a triathlete as much as i want to (laughs) you know it's like that you've got to meet rigorous educational standards yeah so that's great but not first of all not everyone can take four weeks out of their life you know full time to come and train as a biomechanic but also initially we wanted to develop an online portal just as a virtual textbook you know for our current students so we always had you know online resources for students but quite early on we started shooting photographs for what's now team camp the online biomechanics school and that was when a woman called Caroline Stewart was working for us as lead instructor. Caroline is at Sword Panda on Twitter, and she was a bit of a famous on the in- internet kind of person, you know, at the time. <laughs> she used to be a regular on Scott Diddenbach's bike shop show, and everyone uh, it was John's coach for a little time as well. So essentially, Caroline was involved in the photos and the shooting of this alongside a professional photographer who we hired in as well so we had the photographs sat around for quite a long time but we never really quite had the bandwidth you know to do bike mechanics online and as a standalone course i was always a bit skeptical like yeah how can we teach this online it's hands-on and julia who's co-director and my wife was always more yeah we can do it and what really drove it was round about 2015 16 that kind of time maybe 17 actually we started doing online webinars just for graduates just to update them on the latest technology so i was like well if you've done a level three which is the top end course with suspension and hydraulics and you know all that kind of stuff yeah five years ago 10 years ago you're out of date so i wanted to work with my partners in the industry people who i respected as experts to deliver online webinars and also for our sponsors to be able to get their content their kit out there you know so rally who came on board as a big sponsor of us could supply us with lots of e-bikes because they were getting big at the time and i could deliver e-bike lessons and it was a paid for monthly subscription and it was a massive hit and the feedback we got is this really works we really like it we want more can we resubscribe so we realized that the time was ripe and while julia had scoped out doing something like team camp like a big year-long 
bike mechanic course previously in 2010 2011 you had to code you know you had to create your own e-learning portal yeah whereas now you know as we speak right now all of this stuff you plug it in there are existing platforms you plug in your content to that platform and people have if you design it correctly a really easy to navigate encyclopedia of information and of course with the technology like we're using now to talk we can have online tutorials so it isn't just a glorified youtube channel it's a genuine interactive learning experience so when i re- you you and i spoke about this probably earlier in the year i was actually setting myself up to do this and i realized how much and and uh, amazing of an opportunity it is this especially the camp itself we do you offer, first of all, with the camp is a one-year program. Is there also an, addi- an additional, like you said, an ongoing subscription for people who go beyond that? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, essentially what you have is Team Camp's a year's membership. Yeah. And basically, if people want to carry on, you can just resubscribe, re-subscribe. in. You know, so we've got quite a few people who've already done a year and they've resubscribed into the second year because we release new content every single month, as you, yeah. you might have seen already, Pat. So yeah. we have different levels of content and the higher end content, I'm constantly filming. I'm constantly creating with all of these fantastic people around the world. And in fact, SRAM, who've been a big supporter of us over many, many years, they've just got in a brand new tech lead, Luke. Sorry, Luke, I can't remember your surname right now. But Luke came in recently, and we've been working with Troy Laffey from SRAM. And Luke said, look, we have got a new guy starting soon. We really want to up our involvement with you. They've just posted a whole load of new equipment, you know, access equipment, you name it, to the UK Academy, as they are in academies in the US as well, actually. And they're supporting us with the online training. So it means when you're learning at Team Camp, the people teaching you, like Campagnolo are teaching Campagnolo, SRAM are teaching you SRAM, 
independent experts are teaching you about different types of suspension or e-bikes. So I've been able to pick and choose the finest minds and brains and of, of the bike industry worldwide who I've cultivated over the years to teach with us. And it, it's just like a community of really cool, fun people. It's, it's as much an inspiration, I find, as a learning experience. So who is this for? Do is this? Do we approach the people? Are you? Are your? Are your clients? Are your students tend to be people who want to work in bike shops or who currently work in bike shops? Or is this the home mechanic? Or is this all across the board? We've tried to make it as broad as possible. So essentially, cycle systems online. You know, you can do just like a basic course for a few dollars and dip your toe in. But with Team Camp, um, we've got what's called our core content which yeah. is essentially all of the fundamentals and when you join tim camp you get a little onboarding video a little site tour video and you've got a quiz and you can do the quiz and it says look cycle systems think you're at this level but of course you don't have to believe us you can start at a later level higher level <laughs> you can just type in tubeless tires whatever but we've set up a very clear structure for you to follow and yeah, even the and even the first hands on the bars level, as you said about your colleague that's doing the course, it's not just how to fix a flat. There's all the information about tires in there as well, because why not? And we've tried to make it in a way that's very easy to find and easy to digest. So we've got people doing team camp who just haven't got the time to train with us. So they're complete beginners and they want to learn the basics, either for looking after their own bikes or maybe they'd want to go into the industry in the future we've also got people who are established mechanics who are really quite good mechanics actually um who are looking to stay on top of what they're doing so they want to keep learning and keep educated just like me i mean i'm yeah. constantly learning about bike mechanics you're never done you're yeah. never finished with the speed of the industry um, so we've got those guys just using it as CPD and they're dipping into the bits they want to. You know, you don't have to do every lesson on Team Camp. It's just what is it for you? What's your success path to, to be cheesy? And then there's, I'd say there's quite a few people who use Team Camp who really want to make a go of it in the industry, but they're a bit intimidated. And they want not only the a trusted source of information, a trusted source of skills, and but they also want the interpersonal support. They want to come online with me and say, hey, Sean, I just did this damper service and I'm not quite sure, or, you know, I'm just about to do my first ever service. How do I make sure the brakes are safe? So there's a lot of people there who are taking the leap as well. Because it's ongoing, and is there is there a point in time where a camp member gets some sort of a graduate certification or something like that or is it just as you said because it's an ongoing professional development that it never really it, it doesn't have to end well essentially we are educators and i have been involved in educating and delivering professional qualifications for quite some time now and my role day to day in the academy is internal quality assurance. So okay. I am checking the quality of the, the work the tutors are doing and the portfolios and such. And I'm an intermediary to the external quality assurance, which is the awarding body. And the awarding body, of course, report to Ofqual, which is the government's uh, department for qualification. So there's this kind of chain of command, you know, of yeah. quality checking. 
Wow. So, of course, we wanted Team Camp to, to be able to be a qualification as well. You know, it's really nice for people to get qualified. And we are currently working with quite a major UK university on getting that done. So, it's funny enough, I've done some work for that today. And essentially, when that's ready, people are going to be able to do edu- university-level bike mechanic qualifications through team camp and that will involve some assessments and things as well you have to have assessments obviously in a qualification but that will be there as an option for people to do and i can't wait i'm really thrilled about that wow so the the curriculum follows a specific path you were saying it is they sure people can jump around but is it recommended that they start in a specific level and then work their way through or is or can they just jump around and do what they want and use it as you said almost like an encyclopedia type of a concept yeah i mean one thing you learn when you train as a teacher because that's what you know we had to do when we set up cycle systems academy we had to become qualified teachers to teach these qualifications is you you learn all about different learning styles and the different ways people absorb information and learn and you know the value of structure and the value of freedom so with team camp especially as it is at the moment as purely a source of education and community rather than being a formal qualification you know there's no need to do it any particular way you can literally choose to do it your way now obviously if a student is struggling with that or feeling overwhelmed with the amount of content that's why we have the live one-to-one tutorials so we can support and guide because we've got the experience you know we've We've transformed thousands of people now from enthusiasts to professional mechanics, you know, who are very, very good and consistent. So we can give that support. But yeah, if if you want to just dive into all the suspension and DI2 and SRAM access lessons, go for it. If you're the type of person that wants to work methodically through each different lesson, then go for that too, you know, but we're not going to define it for you, but we'll help you define your own success path. Yeah. Wow. Um, what is needed from the, the students end? Uh, I know that people have different living situations. They have different, uh, shop spaces. They have different tool supplies and, and obviously some sort of a, a solid internet connection. And I would assume a camera. So there can be some form of interaction should those live things come across. But what, what would be the basic setup for somebody to get going with this? Yeah. So essentially, you know, learning bike mechanics, yes, you need the bikes, you need the kit, you need the tools. So it's making it relevant, you know, essentially to what you're doing. So if you're working in a bike shop and you've got all of that there already, you might be like, okay, I'm going to watch the SRAM lesson on the access reverbs before I actually service an access reverb. Good lesson, guys. The access reverb is much simpler than any of the previous generations. They seem to have got simpler as they've gone along. In fact, the latest RockShox suspension, SRAM have embraced the right to repair. So there's no specialist tools needed. The spare parts are all available. It's really simplified. It's like they've been listening to the mechanics, actually. <laughs> so essentially, at the start of every single lesson, and you know, you might have seen this already, Pat, what we say is, okay, guys, we're in this module, we're in this lesson, this is what we're learning, and these are the tools you need. Yeah. So you know straight away, okay, I'm ready, or actually, I've not got these tools. So if you're working at home, 
you can start to get the relevant tools for learning. And of course, people will often get in touch and say, hey, what do I need? You know, so we had a chap join Team Camp just last week. Uh, hello, Alex, if you're listening. And essentially what I said to him is, well, look, Alex, if you get, if you've got the money to spend, get the Pedros um, Master Bench Toolkit. You're sorted for all of the core content. Really? Absolutely all of it, bar wheel building. You know, and these are the wheel building tools from Park Tool we recommend. Then you're sorted for that bit. And then it's just getting stuff as and you need it. So obviously that's quite a big investment, but, you know, that's learning to be a bike mechanic. You can't do it with a duct tape and a hammer, or even though we do use those things. Well, we use hammers anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was, my next question was going to be a, a, a basic kit setup. And ha hearing that master bench kit is, is obviously a great recommendation. People can look that up and kind of get an idea of where to start or where to mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. add to their own current setup. For example, I'm dealing most of my tools. I started racing in the 80s and 90s, so I'm still, I've still got ancient tools that really have no application anymore. It's almost like you need to throw <laughs> all that out and start all over. But, uh, you know, it, it's a, if they're ongoing concepts we were the cycling is not a cheap sport and probably neither is taking care of bicycles well it pays for itself very quickly yeah. all of this i mean that's the thing is whether you are simply learning mechanics to uh, service your own bike or whether you're doing it to do it professionally it's going to pay for itself right because yeah. you avoid paying for servicing or you start actually charging for your services yeah. and obviously that really varies from place to place, doesn't it? I mean, what does your local bike store charge, like the good local store charge per hour? Do you know? No, I I don't. Unfortunately, it depends on the shop and it depends on the severity of the of the task. Mm. And how so I remember listening to Kaylee Fretz and James Wang and Co. on their fantastic tech podcast. Yeah. And they had two um shop owners or shop mechanics who they were speaking to one of them was from the boulder grappetto uh zach someone or other and he was charging 120 dollars an hour yeah he's in boulder and the other guy was in rural kentucky or something and it was like 60 dollars an hour oh jesus so is this different on where you are like here in switzerland it's 150 bucks an hour and in fact oh my that's God. for people who bought bikes from us for everyone else it's 175 an hour oh my god and it being Switzerland, people pay that, you yeah. know, I mean, I'm doing services at this e-bike store, a cheap one is 500 bucks. I'm regularly doing thousand franc, which is pretty much one to one on the dollar, a thousand franc services regularly on these e-bikes and type three e-bikes. Well, and the technology has come so far. You posted something on, on your Twitter account recently of an e-bike uh, system that you were working on that looked like it required a major electrical engineering type of a degree or certification in order to put together. This has gone beyond a good set of Allen keys and uh, a headset press. It's it's yeah. lunacy. Our, our... It, yeah, I mean, this is why I took a job on a, a, an e-bike store, you see, Patrick, for my own education. And in Switzerland, they're incredibly advanced with the tech. People are happy to buy the best. And also uh, what you call in the States, the type three or class three e-bikes, they're completely legal here called yeah. speed pedelecs. Whereas in France, Germany, Italy, the UK, you've got to wear a motorbike helmet to ride one. So no one does. It's daft. <laughs> so essentially the money's there, the, the machines are there. 
So I've got the great fortune to work with the incredibly skilled mechanics on site and the wider store and some of the manufacturers as well. So I'm learning on a regular basis. And that particular job you mentioned, it was a Stroma, and they are very high-tech machines. I mean, $14,000 for the top-end one, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's replacing the distribution board, which is in, located inside the head tube, and it does what it says on the tin. It distributes the whole bike. So it's connected to everything, and it's all internal inside the stem and yada, yada, yada. And I was working with someone who'd done an apprenticeship at Stroma. And he said, look, Sean, it's all quite easy. You've just got to know this and this and this and know this. So this is the sort of stuff I can then pass on in, in Team Camp. It's why I'm doing it. Do you ever get to the point where you just throw your hands in the air and go, what the fuck? Come on. How far do we need to go to make this difficult? For example, um, my, my, my son, my son had a crash recently and he damaged his handlebars. And then all of a sudden, because of the brand of the bike, because of this brand of the stem, because of the internal wiring setups, everything has to be so specific. And I mean, I'm sure that's simplistic on, on your end, but it gets so frustrating to the point that everything is so intricate, so very brand specific that you just want to say, oh my God, give me a good old fashioned lugged steel bike and I will just deal with the weight penalty. Well, give me a circa 2011 carbon bike. I mean, it definitely isn't something I'd sniff at. I completely agree with you, and so does pretty much every mechanic I know. In fact, the workbench I'm at at the moment, five days a week, because Team Camp is a startup. I do that. On, I have two days off, and one of them's a Monday because I work Saturdays. So yeah. Monday is my sort of Team Camp Blitz day, <laughs> and I'm working at this bench. And there's one part of it. This is all Rockshock stickers on the bench. <laughs> And my colleague, Claudio, he said, Sean, do you notice there's a block of metal underneath there? I was like, oh, I hadn't noticed that. He said, yeah, that's where Dommy smashed the fuck out the bench with a hammer because he was so frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a guy that was an absolute e-bike expert, you know. So certainly, Graham Freestone King, who is one of my colleagues in the UK, he... Um, teaches bike mechanics also at Velotech training which is a fantastic place they do Campagnolo Pro Shop and the rest he works with World Tour teams UCI you name it Graham said that most bike designers seem to have just about graduated from eating the crayons to colouring in <laughs> and when you look at them, these modern bikes which as you say with completely proprietary components with full internal routing it's nuts it's completely nuts so you know, this stromer I was doing the other day, this was hours of work, you know, a couple of grand job, easy, you know, parts and labor. But the ironic thing is, if they needed new headset bearings, it would have been the same level of work. Really? It's hours. Yeah. And if you charge, if you're paying 175 an hour yeah. to swap out your headset bearings, it's completely irrational. You know, if you are wanting to beat Tade Pogachar at the Tour de France, you're going to need the right drugs and the right bike, okay? And <laughs> a way to cover up the former. And essentially, that's where every single bit of gain counts. You know, you see people racing in skin suits and aero socks and all the rest of it. But if you're a Fred, 
what you need is to service your headset for a 10 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It really, really is. And funnily enough, James Wang, who I really love, adore and respect, you know, professionally, he was talking on, on his tech podcast, it's called Geek Warning these days, yeah. that his favorite road bikes were circa 2011. I was like, me too. You know, the early 11 speed era. Yeah where the frames were carbon, so they were like a kilogram weight. You know, the forks were around about 300 grams. They were rim brake forks, so they could be much lighter than the modern disc brake ones. Cables were external. Tubes were round. You could buy all sorts of different components to go on your bike. And the level of technology, whether it was the shifting or the wheels or the tires, was gorgeous, yeah. you know? And certainly my bike from 2011 is now my son's bike, and it's still probably my favorite bike of all time. So funnily enough, I recorded a Cycle Systems podcast today, just like Sean's advice on buying a new bike. And I'm kind of like, you want to avoid anything with kind too much either planned obsolescence or proprietary components there, if you can. And that's becoming more and more difficult as time progresses okay i mean yeah. I, my bike my yeah. bike for example if Je if my son would have crashed on my bike i i just swap out the bars i go i loosen the stem you know pull out the bars throw on a new set maybe maybe a new brake brake hoods or something like that ready to go within two days now we're we're in this okay take it to a sh proper shop find a shop that deals in those that company specific ingredients and then try to get them here in time and he's 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 out three weeks mm. it's just yeah it, it, it's only going to put people off i mean yeah. i think that's the thing about the bike industry is and it's just its own little internal world you yeah. know it's a bit like politics and let's not go there but you wonder how these politicians can be such lunatics, <laughs> okay? How can they be so removed from reality to do what they do? And then you realize they've got their own little clubs, their media cliques and political cliques, where they run around reaffirming the same mad story to each other. So it becomes truth. <laughs> and I think it's the same with the bike industry. Yeah, You know, they, they jerk each other off with this absolutely mad shit that absolutely no one asked for and no one needs. And they they stop making all the other stuff and say, well, it's what the market demanded. It's yeah. like no road racer asked for disc brakes, none of them. And, you know, I'm not a Luddite because, of course, bringing disc brakes into road bikes has brought in the wider tires as a kind of little side benefit, which is kind of cool. But, guys, we did have cyclocross bikes with wide tires before that, just saying. But a lot of this change is definitely forced upon us you try buying a, a top-end road bike for example now with external cables with um mechanical group set etc yeah and then even if you find something with a mechanical group set um i was working at another store last year where we were scott dealers and there were these scott road bikes and the mid-end ones had 105 mechanical gears which is a perfectly good group set because they got this awful ugly system where all of the wires and cables they come out the bottom of the stem and go into this big gaping mouth in the ugly proprietary steerer yeah. and that you know if there's the mechanical cables they're going around so many bends and it's housing all the way to both mechs that the friction in there's massive and it feels worse than a sora group set would have done on a 
normal bike, yeah. you know, and it, it looks like shit. You know, if you own one of those bikes in 10 years' time, good luck getting one of those proprietary steerers. Yeah. You know, it rides like shit, and it costs a fortune. You mentioned the fact that a lot of it's being, in essence, shoved down our throats. As you stated earlier, I don't think road bikes, road racers really ever asked for disc brakes, especially when you're nope. dealing with, with wheel changes mid-race mid or if you're mm. traveling with your bike and something mm. happens, um, you can't just replace a cable and off you are, off you go. Or even a, or even a quick release. No. It's all proprietary. Yeah. Yeah. you know through axles now so i don't want to be that grumpy mechanic but you're asking the questions yeah. i've just got to call it as i see it yeah yeah and and uh tubeless tires i think we could all go into for forever you know in, in the pros and cons <laughs> of a tubeless system and you know we have one particular host on here who's probably screaming at his at his phone right now wanting to discuss it but we're not going to go there right because it, they, as you said they all have their benefits but in some cases mm. it's being so pressed upon us that there's not going to be any alternative i'm looking across the room at my yeah. rim brake road bike and i love the bike i love how it feels um and then my son will go out he, he has to borrow a rim brake bike until his bike is fixed and he says oh my god i noticed the difference it's scaring me how longer it takes mm. to stop and i'm like wait Mm. are you shitting me come on i've been doing this since 1980 uh, you, you mm. can stop but oh well there you go um, well honestly honestly if he got on the bike that i've got in the cellar here with the jura ace 9000 calipers yeah it honestly that's just as good or better than any disc brake system it's staggeringly good it, it, you know that was like the pinnacle you know of um yeah. of rim brakes for sure but it's gone. So what do we do? Do we just stockpile all these rim brake pads because we know that we're going to keep them like toilet paper during COVID because we know they're going to be gone someday? Or do we just people are? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have to. Stop. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm st I'm going to I'm stockpiling SRAM um, eleven speed mechanical shifters. Really? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> so, and and there's another. I don't know if this is is something in regards to to your area of expertise, but I've always been romanticizing about the days of a quality steel frame. Are those days gone? Can steel, in your opinion, even come close, or is it just they're never going to be able to make something that can rival the the weight and the rigidity of of carbon? Well, I've interviewed lots of great uh, frame builders over the years and met some wonderful frame builders. And in fact, that afternoon when I was drinking wine in the mayor's office in London, I was with Ted James, who was working with me as a mechanic at the time, Super Ted. Um, and he is now very famous uh, frame builder in the UK and has helped Reynolds develop new types of tubing and such. So... And look, you know, the Australian hand-built bike show has just happened as we're talking. And the level of craftsmanship and expertise, like look at Rob English in the US. Yeah. I think the level of steel frame building is better than ever. And the waiting list for these guys is years, or some of them have got their books closed. So can you still get good steel bikes? Definitely. Is, are they going to be as good as a carbon fiber race bike? Well, it depends on what you want. You know, like my 
um, main squeeze road bike at the moment, a Lapierre Elias um, Pro, which is is a disc brake bike with SRAM Red Mechanical. When I've got the DT Swiss Monchasserelle wheels on there, the lightweight climbing wheels, it is um, just over six kilos wow. in weight. And I get on some of these alpine climbs and I can do some of it in the big grip. Like you see the guys on wow. TV. You wow. know, I can't do I can't do a 15k climb in the big ring at 30k an hour, but you notice the difference compared to say a 50 mil. Like I'm I'm lucky enough to have a bunch of wheels from DT Swiss on long term loan, and I've got the 50 mil D um, ARC 1100s, like the top top end version, and they're only a few hundred grams heavier than the Manchester rails, but you do notice climbing wow. for sure. Um, I'm also lucky enough to have one of my dad's old bikes, which I use for commuting in bad weather. It's an almost scatto steel yeah. frame, Italian steel frame with Columbus SLX tubing. It's got Ultegra 9 speed on there and the finishing kit of the era with hand-built wheels, 32 hole three cross. Oh, yeah. And yeah, you notice the difference. You yeah. really notice the difference. Not just the fact it's got the old school gearing, you know, um, yeah. 3953 on the front. So essentially, um, you are never going to match the performance, but I think the differences are not vast and it may well be worth it. And, you know, the, the top, top, top end steel frames the Madison Genesis team were racing on steel frames a few years back and they were getting close to the weight of carbon, yeah. but the walls were so thin. They were so thin that these were frames that would maybe last a few years, you know, not like your Columbus SLX or what have you. Yeah. And the frame, the teams refused to ride them after a year or two. These young lads were like, look, it rides like a wet noodle. And they soon went on to carbon frames. So long answer to a short question wow. yeah. is that they're never going to match the pure performance of a modern carbon fiber bike, but it, in many ways they can excel yeah. in a million different reasons. I just wish there was a, a, a budget restriction when it comes to some certain things, when it comes to bikes um, and trying to find ways to make the sport, the, correct me if I'm wrong, the sport has just become too expensive. To, for for anybody to remotely say, hey, I think I'd like to try this, or hey, honey, we should get Junior involved in the sport of cycling. It won't cost us that much to get him going. Oh, wait, I got to replace his bike every two years because he's outgrown it, or or he crashes and there's a fifteen hundred dollars set of handlebars. It's just I, there's, it's never going to get any better. Yeah, you got, you have to be sponsored by a Gulf state with dodgy human rights yeah. record just yeah. to send your kid to the <laughs> under twelves race, right? <laughs> exactly all right let's let's finish with a couple fun questions best bike you have ever owned and and had in your arsenal yeah so i'm not going to be romantic and talk about you know kids bikes and everything yeah um mountain biking okay we'll be a bit romantic here just for fun <laughs> rock rock lobster 853 Okay. Tig welded, you know. Yeah, I did have to sell it when more modern geometry came along. So I rode things like the Nikolai Geometron, and it just ruined me. Like yeah. the Rock Lobster felt like a little kid's bike after that. But that's the mountain bike I had the most fun on for years and years and years. You know, the frame lived with different forks, different components. Yeah. It was awesome. 
Um, road bike, so is that look? That's now my son's bike. So it was a look 566. Six. So okay. nothing mental. I think the frame was like 1.2 kilos. It's had loads of different group sets over the years. Um, Campag 11 speed, like the pre-2015 stuff, the nice stuff. It's had SRAM group sets on there, DI2 group sets, and it's currently got the finest Dura Race group set, the Dura Race 9000 group set on there. All sorts of lovely kind of pimpy finishing kit. Do you remember the Celia Italia monolink saddle oh. and seat post? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's on there and it matches the colour and everything. Oh, God. Um, and it's it's got it's got pro finishing kit up front and there's a couple of sets of wheels for it. There's the American classic road tubeless wheels, 1200 gram road tubeless wheels. So with those wheels on, that bike with bottle cages with its carbon fiber dual race pedals is 5.9 kilos wow wow okay and it's pretty stiff as well and it's incredibly comfortable so that is an awesome climbing bike you know yeah. all external cables threaded bottom bracket round head tube also um got a set of zip 404 firecrest wheels for that which were the best carbon wheels for um the brake tracks not melting <laughs> Yeah. Breaking, and I did a really long team camp lesson with Josh Portner all about that. Actually, you know Josh from Silk. Yeah, I know Josh. Yeah, he yeah. Used to be chief engineer at Zip. He's one of our regular contributors in team camp. But I've got a set of those. But as people who know bikes know, Zip hubs are terrible. Sorry, Sram, but it's true, and you know it. So I rebuilt <laughs> the rear with a Hope. What was I? I can't remember what it's called now. But the Hope Road Hub, whatever they call it. And that rear wheel is now much stiffer and stays, oh, wow. you know, stays working correctly at all times. So it's got a nice 58 mil aero set of wheels and it's got a climbing set of wheels, best bike ever. This is your kid's bike? Well, he's 16 now. Okay, well, well he's he's dialed. Yeah, he doesn't need anything. Yeah. You were just mentioning all the stuff that comes with this bike. He's good to go oh, for it, a it, long time. It is funny because he did um, some work experience at a local bike shop, Shala Radensport. And Schaller is the the race team that um, got Fabian Cancellara into racing and supported Cancellara. Oh so it gives you an idea of the kind of store it is. Yeah. And then the workshop, they were saying, hey, Oak, have you got a road bike? He's like, yeah, I've got a road bike. And they're like, have you got deep section wheels or climbing wheels on it? He's like, oh, I've got both. <laughs> Depends on the ride. And they were blown away, this 15-year-old kid. <laughs> Sponsored by Gulf State. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So let's do some plugs. How does somebody get started with cycle systems? I actually went through this process with you a while ago, and I really enjoyed this, and I want people to know kind of the process of how they get involved. Okay, so um, cyclesystemsonline.com, that's where to come. It's where you can see what we do, and you can access all of the free podcasts we've done over the years with John Galloway and all sorts of other luminaries, which you'll have come across on the fantastic pack filler podcast and the various <laughs> other pods you're involved with pat cycling legends yeah. um yeah you can find us online as well cycle systems online on the various social media platforms and what we like to do because it's not necessarily a fit for everyone is we like to arrange a quick zoom call and actually do a site tour of team camp and start relating the content there to what you need what you want and we might say hey actually 
you might as well just book a mechanics course in Colorado or whatever you need. Or it might be that team camp is just what you need and we can get you signed in and get you started that same day. So that's how it works. You know, so come to cyclesystemsonline.com, send us a message, book a call with me. And we look forward to speaking to you and hearing from you. And of course, if you want to contribute, if you're an educator, get in touch as well. That's that's perfect. We, as I stated earlier, we've got Jackson enrolled in it right now. He's I, before I hit the record button this morning, he he came to me one afternoon and said, "I now know everything there is about tires." And he has just started the process, so he's he's really <laughs> enthusiastic about it. And what we're going to be doing for for our listeners to understand is we're going to be doing a regular segment on the show, probably every you know every couple of shows, where Jackson's going to talk about his progress within the camp and what that what everything that he has been learning all the offers that you guys have and this this interactive element of it because he's he's a full-time working person but he wants to eventually step into the industry a good deal more and what a great opportunity to be able to schedule it on your own time and make it happen when you can do it you can't just drop everything as you said go to a camp somewhere and four weeks come back ready to go you got to make your house payment or your rent payment or something like that during that time yeah that's the idea that's the whole idea of team camp is you can choose when to study you can choose what to study and you know we're just there to support you yeah well there we go thank you sir i first of all i love your insight i love what you guys have set up and i can't wait to see where it's uh going to progress so uh, i appreciate your time man no it's a real pleasure to come on and you know thanks for getting involved with team camp and uh your excitement is infectious so now what? Well, you head on over to CycleSystemsOnline.com and you talk to Sean himself. Next thing you know, you're on your way to mechanical mastery, right? Big thanks to Sean for all of his time. And keep listening to the podcast for everybody out there as Jackson is actually officially enrolled in the team camp and will be updating all of us on his progress along the way. For the Pack Filler Interviews, I'm Pat Bulger. We'll catch you next time. 